The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show here the second and fourth Tuesdays of every month on WDWS. I think I have Dr. Fred Gertz on the telephone. Dr. Fred, are you there? I'm here. <clears throat> Good. And I have certified financial planner professional Ryan Repka who works with me, not for me, with me. See how careful I was. You have to be so careful with your son-in-law. Yeah, prepositions at matter. Rudy, <laughs> at Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. And you should not make an, any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. And uh, Dr. Fred, I read an article. So you know me. I'm a constant worrier about these big deficits. Right. And I know you, uh, you know, it's not that you ignore them. You just, I think you're going to agree with this article as it turns out. But right. it's by First uh, Trust Economics blog. Uh, Brian Westbury writes these. I, I like to follow his work. Um, he talks about the budget deficit for the fiscal year 2020, which ended in September of 2020, was $3.1 trillion. Moving on, he said uh, this year the deficit would be even larger. I'm paraphrasing. He expects the budget deficit for fiscal year 21 to be at least $4 trillion. And The kind of point of his articles is he writes, looking back over the past 20 years, there's no consistent relationship between a uh, higher amount of debt issuance and higher interest rates. In addition, the interest rate cost of federal debt is still very low by historical standards, and private companies may dial back borrowing as many of them have plenty of cash. And I think that is true. He said, but here's what I want to ask you about. He's got this big but. The U.S. is moving in, into uncharted territory by increasing debt rapidly. This attempt at following modern mon monetary theory I believe that the country can print and spend at will has never worked before. It always ends up with significantly bad outcomes, which include devaluation and inflation. But I think like you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, he says, however, these are likely longer-term problems. And he goes on to say it's spending, not deficits themselves, that truly impact the economy. However, the idea that we can spend and borrow like this indefinitely with no consequences will only lead to ruin. Um, do you have any reactions to that well i think the the answer is i, I think we uh, often get this question by people calling in is that right now it's manageable in the future at some point it's got to be uh, a, a real problem and then the, the question is uh, when will that happen and when do we start uh, dealing with it and the answer is always uh, not right now, but uh, pretty soon, and pretty soon always gets pushed off into the distance. And I think the the particular problem now is that we have this unusual, uh, both in terms of the magnitude and also uh, the the uh, cause of it of the downturn that needs really some special attention, and we've been giving it that. Uh, and it, it appears that the Biden administration is going to continue that. So I think no one would suggest right now that we need to uh, start running a surplus to deal with the. Uh, the rise in the debt, but at some point we really need to. So again, it's kind of a, this hedging answer that we 
we need to do something about it, but uh, now it's not the right time, but actually there, there has to be a right time. And I'd argue that we've missed our chances a couple of times. Uh, we actually did do something in the 1990s, but in the period after the Great Recession and until the uh, COVID crisis, uh, we actually ran large deficits when the economy was doing relatively well. So prior to the COVID emergency, we had the lowest uh, unemployment rate in history. Uh, things are going really well, and we we're still running very large deficits. But that, would, that would have been the time to try to address the problem. And now it's not the time, but again, soon it, it will be. And again, these numbers are a little squishy. That um, uh, people often talked about 100% of of GDP as a as a kind of uh, unofficial uh, point of uh, starting to uh, really worry about the de the uh, debt. But we've gone by that, and because of the special situation now, I think that's not really a, a short-term concern. Now, one one final uh, point that, uh, that I disagree with the, the author, uh, modern monetary theory uh, is something that uh, a few economists advocate, mostly economists who don't have any particular uh, record of, of, uh, of research or, or uh, uh, activity in this area. They argue that we basically can forget about this forever. Most uh, uh, mainstream kind of economists say right now we may be behaving as if it doesn't make a difference, but at some point we have to. So I don't think that anyone in a policymaking position has adopted the modern monetary approach. They simply are following it for a short period of time right now. Okay. That kind of squares with the way I feel, I think. I, I do think, well, like everything, there's a distribution of people you know, with different theories. I, I think there's a lot of new entrants into congress etc that probably adhere would adhere right. to the mod but for ho hopefully there's enough people in the middle one way or another right to the right or left to the center but closer to the center because that does yeah, look, the problem though that we, we need to uh, think about the, the low interest rates right now make it easy to to carry a large debt but that may may change in the future the other thing that i think uh we don't remember that with almost uh, close to zero inflation the, uh, the debt is not being uh, uh, taken care of by inflation. And in the days of the uh, 70s and 80s, when we had 10, 12% inflation, the value, the real value of the, of the debt was going down by that amount almost every year because of inflation, and we don't have that now. So low interest rates are, are good, but they disguise the fact that there's not any uh, kind of dispensing of the debt through inflation that we had in the past. I was reading the Wall Street Journal this morning. Um they talked about the saving surge. Many U.S. consumers are starting 2021 flush with savings, having saved $1.4 trillion in the first three quarters of 2020, about twice as much as the same period the prior year. And that's how they go on to say how that's expected to stoke the U.S. economic recovery. Just It seems like anecdotally when I talk to a number of people in the past month or so, there does seem to be this extreme pent-up demand matched by, for some people, uh, and it's you, you know, I, I read somewhere today where, you know, people that had only $100 in savings, they tended to spend 40% of the, the stimulus checks right away versus people that had 4000 saved the majority of that uh, stimulus check. But sure strikes me, for Fred, as we come up, get more t towards normalization uh, with the vaccine, et cetera, it would seem reasonable to expect maybe not even a mini economic boom. Do you think that's reasonable expectation? I wouldn't say a boom, but certainly a quick return to something near normal. 
this is a little bit like uh, the situation before uh, any of us probably can remember. Uh, a lot of people were predicting that at the end of World War II there'd be a, a huge uh, recession, almost a return to the, uh, uh, the Depression years of the 1930s. It was called uh, secular stagnation. The argument was there was going to be a big decrease in government spending because of the ending of the uh, hostilities, and that, that was going to result in uh, a big decrease in accurate demand and the consequences of a, of a downturn. Well, something happened then, which is similar to right now. During World War II, uh, people were earning uh, uh, substantial amounts of money, but they couldn't spend it. So there was a pent-up demand, similar to, not similar, but probably uh, not, not uh, unlike what we have today. Uh, then it was a pent-up demand for uh, things like automobiles and refrigerators and, and homes and things of that sort. Now it's probably pent-up more in terms of services that couldn't have been uh, accessed during the crisis. But so after the after the war, what happened was that we had huge amounts of savings because people couldn't spend during the war, and we had uh, a huge pent up demand, and things actually uh, were very good for the you know, 40s into the into the 70s. So the hope is something like that might happen right now. Again, it's not not the same magnitude, but it's the same kind of idea. Uh, I think that makes sense. Sense does to me. Um, we had peak unemployment during this crisis at about almost fifteen percent, fourteen point seven percent, and the current yeah. unemployment rate six point seven. That seems to be pretty substantial uh, decrease in unemployment in a pretty short order. Right, it, it certainly does. And again, uh, the, the uh, goalposts keep moving here. Uh, you know, Ten. Years ago or so, we might have said, well, getting, getting down to 5 or 6% employment is really about as good as you can do. But we've gotten used to unemployment was down uh, closer to uh, 3 or 4%. So I think the getting back to that 3 or 4% is going to take some time. But again, it's, very, it's been a substantial decrease. And people remember the, uh, I, not remember, but uh, maybe uh, remember from reading about it, the uh, Depression uh, began uh, after the uh, stock market crash in, in um, 1929, but actually it got really severe in the early 30s. And unemployment really never got back to uh, a pre-recession level until uh, the war uh, 10, 12 years later. So that was a very, very slow recovery. This has been a very rapid one so far. And again, the hope is that will continue. And of course, everybody's not <clears throat> getting treated equally. For the lowest quartile of earners, it's likely above 20% Federal Reserve, uh, Reserve Board Governor. Leo Brenner, uh, Brainerd said. Uh, so it's certainly... Now, I read about this uh, Fed official that have had this, kind of this, made this inclusive employment gains a priority. And it seems like they've adjusted policy to try to make that happen. And I think, from what I read, it sounds like they'll allow inflation to run higher than the central bank's 2%, kind of, that's been their target rate. And hopefully the unemployment rate will fall beneath what had traditionally been an indicator of higher inflation before the Fed raises interest rates. And it, it sounds like that's the game plan. Uh, well, I, don't, yeah, I don't know if that's sensible. Plan, or... but, uh, yeah, wanting to do it is not the same as being able to do it. <clears throat> Federal Reserve policy is, uh, uh, again, we talk about fine-tuning, but generally what the Federal Reserve can do is to deal with these uh, broad kind of measures, inflation, unemployment, things of that sort. When it gets down to targeting particular groups that becomes much more difficult and uh, monetary policy is not necessarily something that can uh, be targeted that way so I, I, I'm sure what their their goal is and that would be to uh, 
deal with the people who are probably in most distress right now, but whether they're able to do that or not is probably a open question. We talked about last time uh, the fact that uh, the, the stimulus that's been going on in uh, two or three different waves now has been very quick, which is uh, good news, but it's also been very uh, poorly targeted, where uh, obviously a lot goes to uh, individuals or businesses that may not need it, and there are a lot of people who are in need who don't get it. But that's one of the costs you have to pay in terms of doing things quickly. So, again, uh, I'm sure the policy goal is what you talked about, but whether that can be achievable is is another question. In, in, a, in a broader kind of thing, looking at, at the last several weeks, it's really kind of a strange world because we had, in a sense, the world turned upside down with um, the new administration, virtually everything they've done so far has been uh, trying to pa uh, pacify the, the, the left-wing supporters. But if you look at, the again, the financial markets, they've been rock solid the last uh, several weeks. So we've gone through a, a, a invasion of the uh, capital, uh, change in administrations with a, a major change in policy directions, especially those carried out by uh, changes in executive orders. But if you look at the markets, they've been, uh, in a sense, just still waiting there and uh, pretty much the same. I think Wall Street's view of uh, President Biden, of Joe Biden himself, over all these some 50 years now, um, is one, a person that's not hostile to Wall Street, if not anything friendly to Wall Street. I think, I think that's, that's my takeaway. Yeah, I mean, the argument would be among uh, not just Democrats, but among left-wing Democrats is that what you said is true, and you're not getting the, uh, the real change they wanted. So, uh, again, uh, no one thinks that... Uh, Biden is a Bernie Sanders or, or uh, such, but again, what he's done so far clearly has been uh, trying to placate the uh, the left wing. Yeah, to uh, to uh, well, we'll stay tuned in on that. It would strike me that we came. Yeah, one of the yeah, well, go ahead for parenthetical thing. Uh, some people were talking about uh, uh, you know Janet Yellen, the new uh, Treasury Secretary, is really distinguished, successful economist. They said, well, she's got to bring in these. Uh, uh, left-wing policies, but uh, they, someone also noted that she received $7 million from the financial uh, yeah. sector in the last several years from giving speeches, uh, so uh, she certainly uh, knows those people, and they know her, so I don't think there's as much worry as people might think. And $7 million, that's good, right, Fred? That's that's pretty good money? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure for her, but uh, that's, uh, I've been thinking some Speaking engagements at $100,000 for a luncheon speech, but uh, those aren't are forthcoming, unfortunately. I think most people would pay me $10 just to not speak. <laughs> what do you think, Ryan? <laughs> I think sometimes that's probably true. Uh, Ryan, something I want to move on to, speaking of President Biden, he's directed the Department of Enter, uh, Education to extend the payment pause for uh, federal student loan borrowers now until at least until October 21. Uh, I guess that gives somewhere around 40 to 45 million people you know, a break from making their monthly payments, at least until then. So my question is, what, what, in the meantime, what do you think these borrowers might do? What, you know, is there any strategy that you can think of? Yeah, I think it depends on each, you know, each person's situation. If you're somebody maybe who's kind of been just getting by and, and you've maybe had like a lower amount of uh, savings in the bank, this might be a time where you can try to hopefully rebuild some of those cash reserves uh, by, the virtue of not having to potentially pay these monthly student loans. Um, of course, they are uh, delaying the interest as well. So, I mean, you're not just kicking the can down the road. It's it's, it's deferring. It's, it's Yeah, it's deferring. Um, but I think you you can use this as a real tool to hopefully climb out a little bit if you're in a little bit of a hole. 
paying off some of those uh, bills that might have been stacking up, or if you have credit card debt, maybe that you were paying uh, maybe just the minimum on the card amount, you can really start making some dents into credit card debt. Uh, but use this as a real a real opportunity, a golden opportunity to dig out. Don't squander it if that's you know the situation you find yourself in, um, because these are very rare events where we're given these kinds of relief packages. Um, and I think kind of like to Dr. Fred's, uh, Dr. Fred's uh, comment earlier, it's just this is kind of like a shotgun approach. There's going to be plenty of of gainfully employed uh, people who really don't need this advantage, this nice benefit of delayed payments. But the the approach was get it out quickly and let everyone benefit if they want it. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of people who can you know just game the situation, use this as yet another tool for them to maybe increase some of their savings or otherwise um, improve their their uh, investing options. So. And what about maybe uh, if you typically it's not unusual for people that have student debt to also have some higher interest rate, <coughs> excuse me, debt. Uh, maybe focus on that and some of those higher priority issues and try to like during this intermission. Yeah, right. get their balance sheet in a little better shape. Yeah, exactly. Just just use this time appropriately and wisely. I think would be the greatest thing. And um, you know, I I know that there are some folks. I have a, a very good friend who's a doctor. Uh, he's a critical care pediatric doctor, and he has um, the public loan uh, forgiveness option, which is avail- available to folks who are in the public sector or working for a not for profit organization where after 120 months of payments or 10 years of working under these requirements, uh, they get their federal loans uh, uh, eliminated. So they they are just given this as like essentially a a write-off. So for folks like that, and I'm thinking of people maybe like uh, Carl Hospital Foundation, which is a not-for-profit or other similar hospitals, where they might also qualify for this public service loan forgiveness option, uh, rather than paying their their student loans, which I'm sure are, are rather enormous, especially if you're in, in a doctor type position, um, allowing these months don't don't pay those uh, those monthly amounts, even though you could, uh, because in the end it allows you to to pay less in these debts that you have accrued for very high amounts of uh, medical school education, um, and it just gives you that extra time. So for people outside of that yep. program. Um, what about so if they have the cash, make continue the payments? Would that make sense? Yeah, for folks that that don't qualify for that, which is probably the vast majority of right. people anyway. Um, yeah, certainly you have the cash on hand. You don't have maybe high interest credit card debt. You don't have those kinds of issues that uh, debt wise are are kind of nagging at you. Then by all means, you could of course continue to pay those um, monthly payments, and then you're hopefully knocking down the total interest that you've paid, you would have paid overall over the course of the loan. And is that because it's zero for a while, it's 0% interest. So anything you pay down is going to be paying down on principle, pure principle, pure principle. Exactly. And not, you're not, you're not paying in, for example, $400 a month where, you know, $30, $40 is going towards interest every month and the remainder is going to principle. It's a hundred percent of principle. So it, it does get you potentially out of debt faster assuming you can maybe speed that up a bit so So i I don't want to encourage uh shirking here but there's also a a potential moral hazard problem in that uh, i don't think the question of debt relief has been resolved yet so if there's some possibility which i think there's at least a small probability that uh, student loan debt will be uh at least partially partially forgiven you wouldn't only be paying it uh this month and find out that next month uh, you wouldn't have had to pay it. So, pay it. so it might be worth 
keep an eye out. I think this is probably going to be resolved fairly soon. But uh, right now, as long as there is a, a, a possibility of, of, uh, of kind of a blanket forgiveness, it might be worthwhile to, to have that resolved before you do very much. So, in other words, even if you have the money to pay down, even though you'd be paying down principal, that might be you, – you would hate to find out that, you know, in October or somewhere between now and then, you know, you've paid down a couple of thousand dollars in your – principal for your student loan doing the the right thing uh and all of a sudden you're the one that got left holding the bag because the people that didn't yeah I, that yeah, makes was, perfect it, sense it goes back to it goes back to uh what i said earlier there was a question during the campaign uh uh about uh what about loan forgiveness and uh the, the answer was uh well if we forgive it uh the, the question was what about people who, who paid diligently and the answer was in a sense, tough luck. Uh, government programs are not perfect, and you can't always make up for past uh, differences. So the argument then was that we, we might forgive it in the future, but if you paid in the past, you're not going to get a refund. That's not public policy. That's that, that's what was mentioned there. So again, it's, it's up in the air right now. But I wouldn't uh, wait around for you know six months, a year, or two years to hope this is going to happen. If nothing happens within a, a couple of months, I think that that would probably be a sign to go ahead and and uh, deal with it the way that uh, Ryan was talking about. Yeah, I think that makes sense because it seems like it's already being whittled down to maybe we'll, you know, allow you to eliminate, you know, or forgive the first $10,000, et, et cetera. So uh, I think yeah. that's to be seen, and and uh, I think that's good advice for it. Ryan, I noticed that we were out through the country. We've had increasing FICO scores, which really doesn't seem to go, <laughs> Fred, to you too, Uh yeah. When you look at average FICO scores, which is basically your credit score for U.S. consumers, hit a record of seven ten last year. Uh, oddly enough, millennials led the pack with an eleven point increase. Um, but all generations incre- improved their credit scores. And now, if someone said, like you said la- a couple of shows ago, Fred, if someone would have told us last January first what was going to unfold from an economic standpoint. You wouldn't put a general, you know, generally rising trend in FICO stores uh, uh, scores in that conversation. I, at least I don't think so. Um, yeah, so it's kind of an artificial restraint on spending. Is that usually people have to uh, create discipline not to go out to dinner and spend quite a bit of money for for a, a dinner on a weeknight. Uh, that option wasn't open to a lot of people, so they were being forced to do things that may have been a good idea to begin with. Yeah, I, I jokingly thought, Paul, when you said that. You know, millennials led the way with the increase. It's like, well, of course they did. They can't go out to brunch on Saturday and Sunday anymore and can't do all the fun things they're used to. And I'll say that with the caveat that I am considered in the millennial generation. So um, there's there's less expenditure on kind of like those items. Maybe there's more savings and FICO goes up. I realize I'm in the baby boomer generation. That's 56 to 74. And I didn't even know there was something called the silent generation, 75 plus. If you ever would have met my mother, you would have never claimed that that was a silent generation. (laughs) I think it's the cranky generation. Anyway, how about some ways to improve your credit score? Just kind of like basic ones, as long as we're talking about that. Any thoughts on that? Uh, Yeah. So like if if we start maybe like thinking about credit card um, debt, so... The, the way that credit card debt works is the more uh, you've accrued on your credit cards relative to the amount you're allowed to spend, which is your spending limit, um, it negatively affects your FICO score. So two things can be done. You can either reduce the amount that you put on your card or continue to pay off um, the amount that's due on a monthly basis to the extent possible, the full 
uh, amount due every month, or you can also uh, request for a higher spending limit. Um, so you can increase, you know, the denominator. So the, the, the utilization rate of how much you're relying on your credit card is one of the big factors. Certainly, um, and you know, what I'm explaining is there's, you know, you can affect the the top, the numerator, and the denominator, the bottom uh, numbers, and you can do both of those things to in, to increase or in this case decrease your utilization rate, which will hopefully increase your FICO score. Um, I know I did this. I I went out and recently asked for a. Uh, a higher credit limit because I knew I was going to be needing some some credit for buying a new car and um, paying down the debt, and so your your rating your utilization number goes down. So there's just little things you can do, and I think it's worth noting that of course if you don't need your credit in the near term, it can't really hurt you if you have a, a potentially a higher credit utilization. If you don't need to go out and get a a home loan or a car loan, and there's no foreseen need right. for your credit, it's okay. But if you're you're aware of kind of like a short-term need where you're going to potentially need to get credit, you, of course, can take these steps to improve your credit. I think one of the things a lot of people don't realize is something as simple as making your payment, your, at least your minimum payment, on time sure. every month. I mean, yeah. that is a huge factor. And, you know, you let it slip once or twice, and all of a sudden it's really hard to – you can overcome it over time, but it it's really – that digs a pretty deep hole. Yeah, it's almost like they they brand you with the scarlet letter. It's like – what what is there a kind of a suggested uh, utilization rate uh, where you try to threshold where you might want to stay below? Yeah, general guideline is staying below thirty percent of the utilization rate. So, so if you have ten thousand dollar credit card, you go above three thousand dollars, and you typically, when they're checking it, they're they see four or five thousand on a ten thousand dollar. That that could ding your credit score. I noticed yeah. that because, as you know. I use one credit card. It's a personal credit card, and then the company reimburses me to get out know, flight miles, all those things. And uh, sometimes it can ramp up, unbeknownst to me. You know, all of a sudden it's uh, it has a very high limit, but all of a sudden it has a pretty high utilization. And I'm like, why did my credit score go down 15 points? <laughs> well, because that day they looked at it, it looked like I was a you know high a high utilizer of yeah. my credit cards. Yeah. So and I actually do now. I pay attention to that. Uh, more frequently because I can just pay it quickly online. So I just check my Chase account f- frequently. And even I just kind of every time I look at it, I just pay it off. Yep. yep. But one other point, uh, I, I think that people should be worried, though, about paying someone to rehabilitate their credit score. Those typically are sort of just the same, thing, same things you've been talking about here. And no, no reason to pay a lot of money to try to raise your credit score when you, you can probably do it yourself pretty Pretty easily, yes. Uh, if, you, if you have the will, and the other thing, uh, there, there's also the uh, the cold turkey Dave Ramsey kind of approach, and say, who cares about my credit card? I'm not never going to use credit for the next five years, and just go on a, a binge in terms of trying to save and and, and uh, uh, pay down your debt. And, and, and during that stage, uh, your credit really your credit rating probably doesn't make a lot of difference as long as you can maintain that kind of discipline. Yep, certainly. I know one thing that uh, surprised me uh, just when I was learning about this is that just a very minor 5% uh, credit utilization can lower your FICO score. And I think... So, I mean, as soon as you go over, you're 30, you want to stay under if you can, but yeah. less, but if but you're if, under 30, it doesn't magically. It says if you're 10 is worse than 5 and 15 is worse than 10. Yeah. But just something as, as small as 5% and your FICO score goes down a little bit. I thought, wow. I'm sure people, most people carry significantly multiples of 5%. 
Um, so it just shows you that that it does matter. I think that's the the point. You know, just being mindful of what you spend. Yeah. One financial advisor uh, who's like a, a national kind of a guy, Carl Richards, his, his thing about spending on credit cards is, you know, to the extent possible, just be mindful and say. I just spent $28.32 filling up my gas pump at the or my my car at the gas pump and he goes I take a minute to think about it and say hmm that's interesting how much did that take me to work for example and when you start getting in this mindfulness practice of thinking these are real dollars it's not just an action of putting a card in a machine and going about your day it's money being spent it can have positive impacts on what you actually choose to purchase. Gas, we know we can't get rid of. And you, and you mentioned but. Dave Ramsey, and he likes that. I, I don't really follow him per se, but I know he has this envelope approach where you put cash in each envelope for each purpose. And it would seem to, to me that if a person really, if a person did that and was really determined, that would probably change some behaviors. Oh, as yeah. A, because it's a lot easier to, you know, now you don't even have to slide it in the thing. You just tap it. And you, you know, or click your watch twice and you, right. and you just bought something. Yeah. And like most, so many things in investing and success, just becoming a successful financial person, um, that behavioral aspect, it's not just about your investments. It's also about how you consume. Yeah, and, and also, you wouldn't have to give up the convenience of a card if you, I, I think I'm right, uh, Brian can check me, but if you go to a debit card, you can still have the convenience of a, of a card, but not having to worry about the, uh, the credit score. Oh, you have to worry about someone ripping you off because that's where it all happens, Fred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For instance, I will not right. use a debit card. Now, maybe I'm, I'm starting to go, maybe, I'm, maybe I should be in the silent generation. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm more like 75 yeah. and older. But, you know, it seems to me like most of, well, that's not even true, but... When you look around town, there's always articles about how debit cards seem to be easier yeah. to, to to deal with. I could be wrong on that, and I admit that I might be wrong on that. At least it just seems to me anecdotally that debit cards have a higher problem with people skimming them right. or, and doing those things. Yeah, to, from what I know, too, is if, if someone does steal your debit card, they can withdraw all the funds, potentially, depending on card limits on a daily basis, that you have on that card if they have access to your information. Whereas a credit card, if there's fraudulent charges you get reimbursed by the credit card company unlike a debit card so there's different debit cards have protections in them if you notify them quickly enough etc so it's you know you can uh you know solve a lot of that problem but there is i just not a big but i think fred's point's right because that's more like taking cash out of your pocket right when you're using a debit card it's not this someone's going to carry me and i can delay these payments for 38 years for this you know Tank of gas. <laughs> Thirty years later, I paid it off. Yep. <laughs> Good point. I've been writing a lot of car, uh, uh, not a lot, but a number of articles about retirement threats or threats to retirement. Let's put it that way. Um, Ryan, I wanted to go over a few of the kind of the biggies and the more common ones. Um, if if you were to list your some of yours that you would put out there, which ones would kind of hit you first? Um. For some people, it would be overspending, uh, not knowing what they, of course, should or could be spending when they consider that we have a rising cost lifestyle over a 20 or 30 year retirement. Um, and it seems like, you know, you may have your investments um, invested correctly or allocated the, the right way on the front end, but then you come to find out 20 years down the road, of course, maybe you are maybe too conservative and, you know, you can't keep up with the spending that maybe you had before. 
Uh, that aside, I think living too conservative from an investment allocation. Too right. much uh, Maybe reliance bonds or on cash CDs. or CDs. Okay. Exactly. So you have you have what you've considered at you know let's call it year zero of, of your first day of retirement very secure money in cash CDs or maybe very low yielding bonds, uh, but what you may not account for is the fact that those instruments the CDs the bonds whatever it may be they're not going to provide enough yield or return that will keep up with inflation that you know is going to chip away at the purchasing power of of what you need over a series of two to three decades and that's simply because if you look at fixed income producing securities and I know everybody. Fred and I can go back and talk about 16% CDs and 13% mortgages, et cetera. But I think, Fred, you were the one that pointed out when you got that 15%, you paid 40% of that in taxes. Okay. So that right. left you with nine and inflation was 12. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. my point is fixed income has never been a way to really accumulate wealth or even maintain it. It doesn't mean it's toxic and you shouldn't have some of your investments in it. It's, it's required for most people, that diversification. You have to have some money that allows you to sleep at night and you have some money that allows you to eat, and that's the stock market portion. Um, but you hit on something. You, you mentioned 20 to 30 years into retirement. Is that, I mean, that probably sounds strange to people, uh, but is that longevity then? Is that by itself becoming kind of a risk? Or uh, a threat to a plan that if you're not giving longevity enough thought, that is, you know what, there is a chance that one of the two of us, a, a spouse a, between spouses, might live into their nineties. Um, how do you yeah. treat long? You know, how do you think about that longevity risk? Right. I I just think about it and I say, well, if your plan, if your your actual expenses and the way you're living your life is like you're going to make it to eighty, but life keeps on ticking and you make it into your nineties you're going to have an issue of some sort and you'll have to make potentially very tough choices on the back end, uh, maybe at a time when you're most vulnerable uh, because you don't have the ability maybe to stay in your home if you're uh, a single spouse. Um, so you, to the extent possible, all we talk about is trying to plan for these kinds of known unknowns in advance. Okay, We're, we'll go back to that, but I see that we have Jack on line one. Jack, how are you? Good morning. How are you gentlemen doing? We're doing great, thanks. I see you have a question regarding credit cards, perhaps. Um, well, <clears throat> I guess it's something that worked for me. Okay. Put it that way, because usually when you get in, you know, financial trouble, a lot of it has to do with not paying attention, and you get too many things going at one time, and you're young, and before you know, I'm 67, so I've, I've made all these mistakes at least a few times, and... You know, if you have a credit card that's got four thousand, another one's got four thousand, another one's got six thousand, and one's got three thousand, well, you know, you're up to close to twenty grand right there. Not right, quite, but right. close. But it doesn't seem <clears> like <throat> it because they're all spread out in different cards. And in the early days, and what I did was, I, uh, I I combined them all. I just completely combined them. I, I you're not supposed to shut down credit cards. Well, I did. I'm glad I did. I only have one. So if you got twenty grand on that card, which is way too much, it it's right in front of you, you know, every month. And what I do is, um, I'll buy everything off that credit card, and then once a month, my debit card automatically pays off that credit card because it's safer. Yeah. Um, like, like you said a minute ago, you know, they can get into your account and stuff with a debit card. Well, this way, the account pays it off once a month. Your credit score starts going up. And you pretty much know where you're at because you only have one card. And that's it. 
I think and that's that where it gets was kind a of big boon for me. Yeah. So in other words, you simplified it so that you could focus quite quickly uh, and, and be very deliberate about your spending. Whereas if there's too much mental math going on and I got to look at juggle four or five different cards, it's really for anybody, for most anybody yeah. to really get a yeah. particularly good handle. So just by going through that exercise, Jack, that's really saying, hey, I'm tired of this. I want to be more deliberate <clears throat> and in order for you to do that. And, it, and that's basically what I've done, too, is I've just eliminated all the as much noise as I can. And I know that all I'm right. going to look at my Chase Southwest credit card and at any given moment I can see where I'm at. And one thing that I think yeah, that's you also you're doing good or if you fouled up a little bit, you're right. Uh, I own next to nothing now, which is good. It's a good feeling. You know, and, uh, uh, I'm, I'm at that stage of my life, too. I have a small mortgage, and that's it. And, you know, and right. I'm, I'm 61, so I'm just a little bit behind you. But I'm a lot younger than you, Jack, is a way, probably another <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> and uh, you know what? I don't know, Jack, if it's you and anybody else who wants to weigh in on this. But being in your 60s is a lot different than your 40s. I know from, from most people in their 60s say, yeah, everything hurts and nothing works. But beyond that. Just psychologically, this there doesn't seem, and I'm painting with a broad brush, but it's just been my life experience, not just personally, just talking to others. Buying stuff mm -hmm. and trying to look successful and trying to do that conspicuous consumption just seems to lose lose its importance day by day as you oh. as you get older. Right, right, absolutely. The only person you got to impress is that person in the mirror, and that's it. I'm in trouble, Jack. I'm in trouble. <laughs> All right, Jack. Well, thanks. Thanks I've for. I've been in trouble for years, so I'm used to it. <laughs> well, you know, I figured out you can be married or you can be right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Ooh, man, that's gonna get a flood of calls in here. <laughs> oh yeah, and I guess it'd be my cell phone because my wife will call me and say, "Hey, what'd you say?" All right, Jack. Thanks for calling in. Sorry to inject humor in there, but. Finance could be so boring sometimes. You need humor. You've got to keep people listening. Um, so what are other ways to address that longevity issue? I think one of the that's great, a big one. Oh, it, it is. I mean, it's the, you know, it's the big gorilla in the room, but one of the, the avenues that you can use is just delaying Social Security to age 70. Um, not everybody will have this option. It, it comes down to can you, can you float your life financially with either savings or your other investments or, you know, 401k IRA money while delaying your social security. And the reason uh, this is so powerful is because every year you delay past your full retirement age, you get an 8% uh, credit essentially, or, or increase in, in the amount that you'll get on your benefit. And so if you are able to retire at 66, you get a four year credit for a 32% increased benefit. Um, but the value of that is not just for you as the person with social security. Um, it then also can trickle down to your spouse because upon passing, uh, your spouse doesn't just get half of your full retirement age benefit. Uh, they can get the full amount of your delayed benefit if it's larger than their particular benefit. That might be a little confusing, but... Let's just say you're, you're, you know, to deal with longevity, having a Social Security payment that's maximized at 8% a year guaranteed increase, inflation-adjusted right. return, you can't buy that in the marketplace. So it just provides a surviving spouse since the surviving spouse gets the higher of the two, if the higher of the two is even higher due to delay, right? Uh, it offers that level of protection. Um, and so that that's a good point. Have you been surprised, Ryan, you've been with me for a number of years now, how many of our clients have, you know, adult children that you have, they have some dependency on them financially? 
Uh, yeah, I think a little bit. I, I would not say surprise in a bad way, but surprise in whether maybe it's the general interest in helping out their adult children. Um, you know, it's I want to step in more so than I feel like I have to necessarily. Uh, there's a lot of families that, that feel, of course, that, you know, they're not done being parents just because their kids turned 18. Um, and so that is of interest. Um, and then I think for for people who may have find, you know, found themselves in a similar situation, whether it's a helping a child or maybe even a, a parent of their own, they can be squeezed on both ends, the younger and the older side. Uh, it then becomes a question of, well, can I be okay financially by helping out either the higher or the lower generation? And to what extent am I able to do that without necessarily harming or impacting my my financial wellness and my long-term prospects of being retired? Doesn't it seem that the difference of being able to deal with that and last year we saw that on steroids, right? So many people were out of a job or had diminished incomes um, that hopefully required some help and were able to get it. But just think what it would be like if you didn't have a financial plan mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you have this financial need from a family member and you really have no idea. You have nothing to throw that against right. to say, okay, if I help John and Mary out and either give them $10,000 or begin to make their mortgage payments, what fill in the blank. Right. It's it, it seemed to be much of a relief if you say, okay, how does that impact the next one or two or three decades of my life? I mean, how, how do you do it otherwise? Right. I mean, that's what I think of. I think about someone who's maybe sitting in their chair at home. They're watching maybe the stock market coverage on uh, the TV and it says, you know, 20, 30% down from where we were a month ago. I'm talking about maybe in, we're talking March of 2020 at this point. Right. Um, and you say, gosh, things are looking really bad out there. I'm getting nervous personally. I don't have a financial plan, maybe. I just know that I have to live on this money. And then no sooner than, than you just finish watching the news, you get a phone call from your son or daughter, I lost my job. Would you be able to help out in the short term? Right. So you've just felt like the squeeze personally, and then you're getting another call for helping for a, a family member. And, and you almost feel maybe paralyzed. Of course, you want to help but you don't necessarily have the tools or the information to know, can I do this? Let me ask you a question. You, you don't have the years I have in this business. It's my 38th year. But if you went down to a, if you went to a series of people and you said, look, do you have a financial plan? And anyone that says no, if you say, look, I will bet you $100 that if you have somebody do a well-thought-out, prepared, written financial-slash-retirement plan, what, how many of them a year from now, if you bet them $100, that they will be happy that they did it, you know, and they won't regret? Let's put it this way. You bet them the $100 that they won't regret doing it, and, they're, and they're, they don't feel better off and more confident and more comfortable. What are the chances of somebody, if you having to pay that $100? <laughs> Virtually none, unless someone's just trying, trying to game me, of course. Uh, there, there's been studies, in fact, about this, so it's kind of an interesting comment. It shows that people who do have a written out financial plan, it doesn't even have to be this incredibly in-depth uh, spending plan. It doesn't have to be anything more than I'm trying to reduce debt. I'm going to invest broadly and just have simple plans written down set of on rules. paper. Essentially a set of set rules. Set of rules to live by. A guideline, nothing detailed. Those people mentally feel better because they feel like they have a plan in place. They have a guiding set of, of principles. I thought about this a lot over the weekend because for some odd reason I, I happened to stumble into three relatively new clients and and people listening to this it probably sounds like a commercial I promise you it's not it, it kind of took me aback a little bit because 
three of them in a row, which is really unusual. You know, it just it just was it hit me as a little unusual. Just went on raving and thanking us for well, I was the only one in the room, but thanking me essentially, and and just talked in terms of how it's just been such a relief, and they don't worry about stuff anymore, and they just feel so much more in control and confident, almost to a point of teary-eyed, mm-hmm. um, which probably sounds corny, but I assure you it's true. And I, w- I remember going home to my wife and saying, you know what, I mean, I, I know having a retirement plan for people that are retired is important, but I think sometimes I even lose sight of the fact of just how much emotional relief there is by having the confidence to know that somebody is has, has a well-thought-out plan for you, they're thinking about my money every day, uh, they're going to tell me when I need to preserve capital and spend a little less. They're going to tell me when I need I can enhance my retirement by spending more because of a prosperity rule, if you want to call it. In other words, they just have more money than they have goals. So someone needs to let them know that they have the ability to do more. Um, I just anyway, sorry to go on that. I, that just that was not scheduled. That was just more of a wondered what your your thoughts were on that how about early passing of a spouse is that that that's one i wrote about that's that can be a it could be a non-event oh, right. well it's always an event emotionally i'm talking just purely financial terms mm-hmm. but that can really also create a lot of financial damage and stress because people are vulnerable at that time anyway certainly i mean you're emotionally vulnerable you have a lot of things happening in a very short order um without some bit of planning in advance it can be an absolute um, emotional wreck. But with the benefit here, of course, is doing a few little things on the front end will be a substantial improvement. Just knowing if you're somebody who maybe draws a pension, how much of that pension might um, carry over to your spouse. Generally, there's going to be a, a reduction in benefits. Not Most people don't take a full 100% spousal benefit because it reduces the amount that you receive as a, a, a dual living couple during your, your years of both being alive. Uh, so just knowing in advance is that pension stream reduced down to 75%, 50%, whatever it may be, so you can plan ahead. Um, so go double-check it, even if it's been course. eight years since you've been drawing that pension or annuity payment. Uh, of, of Just verify what that, you know, how much the surviving spouse gets right. when the first one wakes up on a cloud. It's easy to sign up for these plans and look at the numbers and then basically put it away in the back of the, you know, the, the drawer and not think about it for a long time. So it's just... As you say, good to just refresh yourself what, on it. What about the tax issues? A lot of times, you know, a, a, a joint spouses, joint filing, uh, married filing jointly, uh, or in a, can be in a relatively low tax bracket. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it was, maybe there's some still some substantial income coming out of rollover IRAs, et cetera. Now we have a single person with a standard deduction of one person, and they can suddenly also go into a higher tax bracket at the same time. Yeah, they, That's something to watch out for. They call it like the tax tor- torpedo, I think, is like the, the fun name that the media has put on it. But yeah, out of nowhere, seemingly, you know, not seemingly, in real real terms, your, your tax bracket jumps up maybe to the 22% bracket if you're in a lower tax bracket because you're only just a single person. So just being aware that that is something that you should be on the lookout for. And I also think an important point to note, Paul, is just that if, if maybe the spouse who is maybe the financial leader in the, in the couple is the one that passes away first, that presents itself a, a whole series of challenges, just making sure that the uh, spouse who's surviving is uh, given enough tools in advance to then be able to tackle their living and lifestyle needs. That's a good point, and I know this is going to sound like <laughs> asking a barber if you need a haircut. 
Um, suppose in, in a in a partnership between two people, one is the dominant financial person, the other is more passive and really not that interested. Um, wouldn't that make sense then to have something or someone in place that knowing that if look if the person's passive and not that knowledgeable about it, at a time like that of a passing of a, a partner or spouse can certainly be uh, considered to be a vulnerable t- time period. For me, it would seem to make sense for many people to make sure that if there's a reason to hire a financial advisor, again, it's that's the business we're in, so you know, it's shameless self-promotion, I suppose. doesn't have to be us. It could be we have a lot of great advisors in this town. But I, the benefit, uh, I think it's very important to establish that relationship with somebody that you can develop a trust with and determine if they really are trustworthy after a amount of, period, uh, amount of time goes by. That seemed to me a really smart thing to do. Yeah, I've I've seen it firsthand, and I know you have over your years. But it, that was kind of a surprise for me, um, just seeing how many people were uh, completely capable, competent, uh, educated people who are able to handle their own finances, who voluntarily, of course, chose to hire an advisor. And it wasn't because of them; they could have handled the finances themselves, but they want to ensure they put down a, a roadway for their spouse, who at some point. Uh, could potentially be the the surviving spouse, so that they knew in advance there's a peace of mind in the transition. Okay, makes perfect sense. Fred, we got a couple. Uh, Go ahead, Fred. Add, though, uh, it's not just uh, death, but impairment too. The, the you know 100 uh, full speed ahead person who's doing all the financing, uh, financial decisions may also not die, but may lose that uh, that edge. That's so a great point for that as well. That's a really important point. I, I shouldn't have even missed that because yep. <clears throat> we're seeing more, you know, more frequently, frequently new clients showing up, prospective clients, just because they're starting to sense that, you know, hey, maybe I am. Sl-. It's it's very hard for people to admit it, uh, but those that do can seek out somebody, hopefully somebody they can trust. Um, that's a good point. It doesn't have to be just related to a death. In fact, it's more frequently going to happen because of diminished capacity, probably, from what I can tell. Uh, that's a good point. Fred, in the last minute, uh, state of Illinois, are just kind of like the financial health getting better, getting worse? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's hard to say if, if, if you're uh, in a serious situation. I'm not sure it's worse, but it's certainly not better. Uh, uh, the... Uh, Tax increase, they thought, was going to occur. Obviously, it's not because of the failure of the constitutional amendment. Uh, there may be some aid coming from the uh, federal government with the new administration. So I think it's basically uh, just uh, where we were before, uh, not, not a lot worse, not a lot better. You know, I was thinking. Uh, again, start starting from a bad, not, not a very good situation. I was thinking selfishly. I was like, well, I, you know, we shouldn't let those scoundrels get bailed out by the federal government. But I guess as a resident of Illinois, we ought to encourage it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think it's going to be uh, the, the, the Congress is not going to bestow huge amounts of money on Illinois because we're we've been profligate in the past. They're going to give it out to, to everyone, all states. And okay. obviously, if everyone else is getting it, we need to be in line as well. All right. Well, that's our time for today. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thank you, Dr. Fred Gertz via phone. And thank you, Thanks. Ryan Repko, who's a certified financial planner professional at Rudy Wealth Management. We'll be back the second Tuesday of next month. Haven't figured out the date. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. 
views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.